This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi guys, my name is Sammy J. I have been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy. Yeah. Remember back when we were talking about the Wright brothers and I interviewed David McCullough? Yep. And we talked about that boy that clonked Wilbur in the teeth with a hockey stick when they were in high school. Yep. Remember how that kid grew up to be a serial killer? Yep. Do you remember how people wrote in and were like, I want to hear more about that guy that hit him in the face? Well, lucky them, because so do I. (laughs) Now we are. Uh, I can't resist a good story of gruesome goings on. So today we're going to talk about Oliver Haw, who was that very same person from the Wilbur Wright incident. His life was a mess. I will warn you up front that we are not going to talk about the Wright brothers at all. We won't even talk about that incident because it's kind of one of those weird things that nobody has a lot of documentation on. It's Mm -hmm. like they seem to be playing something like ice hockey on a pond and he got hit in the face and it's unclear whether that was accidental or not. And there's just no documentation. That's the whole story. Yeah, that's that's the whole story. We've already talked about it. And I also want to give just a little bit of a trigger warning here because the story of Oliver Haw is one that is really just a classic case of addiction and the cyclical nature that addicts' lives tend to take. Uh, and that, I know, can be hard to revisit for people who have had to live through it or watch someone live through it. So I just want to give you a heads up here that that is pretty much what's going on for the next two episodes. Yeah. And his first wife, similarly, has a trying to get away and then going back and trying to get away and going back. And yeah. That part's tough to you. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if those are things that, that you are sensitive to that you just don't want to deal with in your, your podcast entertainment, this set might not be for you. Um, but if those are things that do not bother you, buckle up because this guy's a piece of work. Ah, uh, yep. I am with you. I oh, know. He's a piece of work. <laughs> 
He even has a suitable middle name. Oliver Crook Haw was born in Dayton, Ohio on April 12th, 1871. His parents were Samuel Jacob Haw and Mary Frances Metz Haw. And he had an older brother, Jesse Lincoln Haw, who was three years older than he was. And the Haws were deeply religious, and they were devoted not just to the church, but to really helping others in the community. Mr. Haw was known to bring impoverished children to the house so that he and his wife could give them a good meal and clean them up get them clothes in some cases if they needed them uh, before they sent them home. And Mrs. Haw kind of made it her business to keep an eye on all of the boys of the neighborhood and kind of keep after them to ensure that they attended Sunday services regularly. This couple was so dedicated to helping other people that in doing so, they sometimes spread themselves too thin and jeopardize their own financial stability. This is something that Oliver really resented. He was also embarrassed by their public displays of religious devotion. And Oliver's brother, Jesse, also made him uncomfortable. He'd had a brain injury in a fall when he was really young, and that seems to have led to some uh, developmental delays. Yeah, there's not a lot of, uh, like, medical specificity around that. It seems like he hit his head when he was young, uh-huh. and he was what they would call at the time slow. I was going to say, did they describe him as slow? But. There's really no specifics on what that injury actually would have been. It seems like he really didn't get treatment for whatever it was. Um, so we just know that he, he kind of was a little bit like he's also described as simple in a lot of texts. So just not quite super speedy. Um, but seemed for all the world to be a, a very kind and, and good man. So despite his lack of enthusiasm for his family, Oliver, who became something of a bully as he grew up, again, that may be tied into that Wilbur Wright story, started working for his father at the age of 15. The Haws had a carriage painting business, but uh, that arrangement did not work out, and it wasn't long before it was abandoned, and Oliver went to work instead at a drugstore owned and run by Charles C. Francisco. Working in a drugstore gave Oliver ready access to powerful drugs that he started using to self-medicate to cope with pain from tooth decay. Initially, it appears that he started using a product called cocaine toothache drops, which would kill the pain from his tooth issues. Let's remind everyone that once upon a time, you could go to a drugstore and buy cocaine toothache drops. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to those drops, he started mixing other cures. And I'm using the air quotes there. Based on pamphlet recipes for druggists, uh, Bateman's pectoral drops had been part of these kinds of pamphlets for quite some time. That recipe first received a royal patent in Great Britain in 1726 as a patent medicine, and it was alleged to be so effective that many counterfeits followed. Numerous recipes for variations on this formula for Bateman's pictorial drops had been printed in druggist manuals for almost a decade by the time Oliver Haw happened upon it in a book called The King's American Dispensatory. And that was a book of formulas written to advise druggists on the use of botanicals in compounding medicines. The pectoral in Bateman's drops refers to the lungs and chest, not so much just the muscles on your body. This is a medicine initially marketed to treat things like colds and coughs, and then eventually that spread to rheumatism, breast pain, and other maladies. Its effectiveness in treating these things was from its primary ingredient, which was opium. And as an aside, you can read King's American Dispensatory online. We'll have a link to a later publication of it in the show notes. But please do not make these things. 
Oliver Haw got so good at mixing medications at the drugstore that a local doctor named Otho Evans Francis suggested that maybe Oliver should become a doctor himself, and the doctor offered to mentor him. Dr. Francis, who was the city physician, really encouraged Haw to go to college and seriously study science to prepare for a medical career. Haw started his medical studies in 1888 at the Cincinnati Medical College, but though he initially seemed enthusiastic, his attendance was really spotty. For one thing, his family struggled to cover the cost of tuition, and for another, he was still using a combo of of cocaine and opium to treat his toothaches. He also developed a taste for liquor. Despite the inconsistency of his life at this point, Oliver fell in love with a girl named Anna Margaret Eckley, and he managed to convince her family that he should live with them so that he should he could put away money to go back to medical school. So he was still working in the drugstore whenever he went back to Dayton. But Anna's father, William Eckley, did agree to this, but he really wasn't Oliver's biggest fan. This is when the first suspicious incident in Oliver's life really takes place. William Eckley died suddenly of pulmonary apoplexy on February 22nd, 1891. This isn't really a diagnosis that exists today anymore. Yeah. Uh, he had no previous history of heart problems, and he was in good health right up to this unexpected death. And Oliver definitely benefited from Eckley's passing. First, it meant that he could marry Anna, which he did later that year on Thanksgiving Day, without William putting up any objections, which would have been a problem had he been alive. Second, it meant that he could use the considerable life insurance payout that Anna received to go back to medical school, which he also did. He did not return to the Cincinnati Medical College, though. He switched schools to the Miami Medical College, which was also in Cincinnati, and that school would later join the University of Cincinnati. That school didn't work out either. Hall was asked to leave after one semester, although the reason is unclear. Yeah, we don't know why they invited him to exit, but they did, and he did. Uh, He did continue his medical education, though, and he graduated from Louisville Medical College in spring of 1893. And he opened up his own practice on March 10th of that year in his hometown of Dayton. From his office lab, he was working on a project that he claimed was going to change science forever and create a new race of beings. He really felt like um, he was going to evolve humanity to the next level. Referencing Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story, Haw told friends that he was onto a formula that would prove that two beings could share a body. And of course, he was his own guinea pig for testing the drug. Before we talk about how that played out, you might can guess, we're going to have a brief moment for a word from a sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands 
and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So whether he really believed that he was testing a new pharmaceutical or if he was just using his lab as a cover for his growing dependency on drugs, things quickly went wrong for Oliver Haw. He started ordering large quantities of both cocaine and morphine through multiple pharmacies. So he was placing large orders, but then spreading them around to kind of cover his tracks. And just a few months after he set up his office... Uh, and started all of these experiments, Anna sought out help from a neighbor, claiming that her husband, in a fit where he was not himself, had attacked her. The couple separated. Each of them moved back in with their family, and Dr. Haw closed his practice. Anna filed for divorce, but then she discovered she was pregnant, and the two attempted to reconcile. Anna moved in with the Haws, and the doctor once again started a practice, this time out of a room in his family's home. Anna gave birth to William Samuel Haw on December 6th, 1893, but there really wasn't much time to celebrate their new child. Oliver's addiction was once again spiraling out of control, and he stopped working, and Anna once again left her husband. In a desperate move, uh, because things had really just gotten worse and worse and worse, Oliver's parents... uh, started proceedings to have their son declared insane because he had become prone to terrifying fits of violence and they recognized that they really were not equipped to help him through whatever this was. And when a deputy sheriff and a police patrolman arrived at the Haw home to collect Oliver so that he could be taken for evaluation, this plays out like a late Victorian version of the show Cops. So the doctor resisted being taken into custody. He was fending off this sheriff uh, this deputy sheriff and this patrolman, all the while injecting himself in the chest repeatedly. I can only imagine, were this film today, what it would look like. We know, because we've seen it. Now just picture it a 100 years ago. Uh, the doctor 
as we said, resisted being taken into custody, but eventually he was subdued, whether from uh, just being physically overpowered by the two men or if he just kind of wore himself out with all of the drugs that he was taking in front of them. We do not know. Uh, and he was declared insane the following day, which was March 22nd of 1894, by a probate judge after testimony was given by his family. So there was also some family dynamic in the midst. Uh, and he was admitted to the Dayton Asylum for the Insane at that point. At the facility, which had a rash of problems at the time, including multiple patients dying from what appeared to be repeated kicks to the ribs, Haw was given hyoscine hydrobromide as part of his treatment. This is a drug commonly used in treatments today for motion sickness, and in low doses, it's perfectly safe. But in higher doses, it can cause irregularity in heart rate and respiration and even paralysis. And I want you to just make a mental note of that as we go forward. Uh, particularly for the second episode, uh, that will become important. After a four-month stay in the asylum, Oliver was discharged with a clean bill of health. He reconciled with his wife, Anna, and once again, he opened his medical practice. But his time in the asylum was common knowledge throughout Dayton, and no one was really willing to trust him as their doctor. He briefly moved to Springfield without his wife to try to start a practice there, but it went bust within just a few months, and he moved back to Dayton once more. This entire cycle played out again with another Dayton office, which also closed, and then a move to Toledo once again without Anna and his son. While in Toledo, Haw apparently formed a relationship with a woman, and the pair even lived together briefly. But then, according to rumor, she died suddenly, and Haw moved back to Dayton and his wife, and he started using morphine again. And in an echo of their early marriage, Anna planned to leave Oliver. But once again, just as she was getting up the gumption to do so, she found out she was pregnant with their second child, and she once again decided to stay. Their second son, Clarence, was born on March 23rd of 1898. And Haw once again made a go at a medical practice, but this time he shifted gears a little bit, and he decided that he would focus on mineral baths as a treatment. This sounds like it wouldn't be dangerous, but these baths were incredibly hot, and on multiple occasions, Hall left patients in them too long and caused serious medical problems. He was still using drugs, which was a contributor in his neglect of his patients. He was at times found unconscious or naked in hallways of the office building where he practiced. At one point when a dentist who also had an office in the building asked whether one of his patients had been cured, Hall replied, oh yes, I cured him all right. He is dead. So already he sounds like a delight. He eventually set up a second office. So this wasn't a move to a new office. He set up a second branch of his existing office in Hamilton, Ohio. But do not be uh, misled. This was not a sign of a growing business or success. It was, in fact, quite the contrary. He had such a bad reputation in Dayton that he opened that second office in an effort to make ends meet, hoping that he could take on patients for his bath cures there that had not heard of his poor treatment of others in his care. But the second venture didn't really flourish, and Hall once again turned to drugs as an escape. His violent outbursts once again became commonplace, and he was admitted to the Dayton State Hospital, which was a new name for the same asylum he had been in before at the request of his wife. Again, he was released in December of 1900, and he restarted his practice, started using, and let his work fall apart. And while he had been practicing in Hamilton, he mentioned to a businessman who was one of his patients that he thought 
uh, killing the infirm and sick medically was actually a kindness and that he knew how to do so and that he had already ended the lives of some of his elderly relatives. Then in 1901, Dr. Oliver Haw vanished. Of course, he didn't really vanish off the face of the earth. Uh, we're going to talk about what he was doing during that time in just a moment while he was away from all of the people that knew him up to that point. But first, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do, too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issues shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. So it turned out that when Oliver Haw ran away from Dayton, he went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he applied for a license to practice medicine there. And after practicing for a few months in Milwaukee, he moved to Spooner, Wisconsin, and advertised himself as a doctor who could cure any disease. He also got married in Chicago, Illinois, in August of 1901 to a woman named Delia Betters. Delia, for whom Oliver was a third husband, was not privy to the information that her new groom already had a wife. I'm surprised people could not hear how hard my eyes rolled when you said a part, the part about how he advertised himself as a doctor who could cure any disease. Yeah, we've, we've been through those before. Yep. <laughs> One of Haw's patients in Spooner died from morphine poisoning. So for the first time in a string of suspicious events, Dr. Haw was actually arrested and charged in the death. His defense was that the overdose was accidental. He was acquitted due to lack of evidence, but he closed his Spooner practice and moved on to Surring, Wisconsin. And Haw's Surring office uh, did uncharacteristically well for him. He had struggled in every other office, but this one really was was zipping right along. He still lost some patients, but not in a way that red flagged anybody, and his clientele didn't seem to drop off because of it. He was most assuredly still battling the demons of addiction, however, and his new wife, Delia, was not tolerant of the problem. Oliver promised to take a popular addiction treatment at the time called the Keeley Cure, which centered on diet and administering bichloride of gold. And Oliver vanished from Surring for a month, allegedly to go take this cure, though whether he actually ever went to a clinic and received the Keeley Cure is completely unclear. After Haw and Delia reunited, they moved to Michigan to be closer to Delia's elderly mother, but their time as a couple ended abruptly after that. Delia found out about Mrs. Anna Haw, left Oliver, and went to Dayton to have him arrested for bigamy. She assumed that when they split, he had gone back to his Ohio home, but in fact, he stayed with her mother and cared for the older woman right up until her sudden death in June 1903. While in Dayton, uh, ready to confront Oliver Haw, Delia instead found the first Mrs. Haw, Anna. 
And when Anna found out what was going on, she begged Delia to not go public with the story of Oliver's second life uh, out of concern for their two children. And Delia was quite moved by Anna's pleas, and so she decided to drop the matter and just go home. Oliver returned to Ohio after the death of Delia's mother and checked into another asylum, this time in Lebanon, Ohio. While there, he became friends with a woman named Jenny Tui and her brother, Dr. Samuel S. Herman. Haw and Jenny left the sanitarium together so that Haw could take over as her doctor and help her with some trouble she seemed to be having related to her reproductive system. Yeah, the wording on any of the records is, you know, in that sort of clouded... Female trouble. Nebulous, yeah. So we don't really know what the issue was. Uh, she certainly did not need Oliver Haw for a doctor, though. Uh, but he did become good friends with her brother, so comfortable in that friendship, in fact with Dr. Herman, that he admitted to him that he had killed several women performing illegal abortions on them and that he planned to kill his brother Jesse at some point. And he also made it clear to Herman after he told him this that he would kill him as well should he share this information with anyone. Unfortunately, Dr. Herman's sister Jenny had developed a romantic attachment to Oliver Hall. Haw proposed to Jenny, and in yet another case of Haw's life repeating itself, he set up a new practice in Lima, Ohio, using money Jenny had inherited when her mother died. This death actually had happened before the two of them had met. Yeah, so he is not potentially implicated in that death, but he was certainly happy to use the inheritance from it. He was not implicated in that death that one for once. Yeah. Dr. Herman realized that not only was Oliver Haw squandering his sister's fortune, He had also gotten her addicted to cocaine and morphine. Herman began proceedings to have himself legally appointed as Jenny's guardian in in the hopes of getting her away from Oliver Hall. But the lovebirds got wind of this plan and they ran away. They kind of did the vanishing act that Oliver had practiced before. And this time they eventually opened a saloon together in Cleveland, Ohio. By this point, things were in a weird, seedy whirlwind for Hall. He continued to inject his paramour with drugs, which she told their business partner in the saloon she didn't want. And a young woman disappeared while she was living with Jenny and Oliver. The pair were arrested for keeping a house of prostitution, but after being issued a fine, business continued as usual. Haw, who was living under the name Tui at this time and claiming that Jenny was his aunt, was rarely sober and often found passed out in random spots about the town. Yeah, this is such a hotbed of weird at this point. Like, yeah. he's with this woman romantically, but tells everyone she's his aunt. And she's also working as a prostitute with him, it seems. And it's a big, ugly mess. Um However, to make matters even creepier, Haw began to practice medicine from the saloon. Although the suspicion was actually that he was purposely trying to kill patients with drug injections in order to rob them. And to make matters even grosser, by all accounts, this establishment was unbelievably filthy. And its sordid reputation had become such common knowledge that the place was finally raided. Jenny Tui was in terrible shape when the authorities arrived. She was wasting away, nearly unconscious and covered in needle marks. Hall was charged with disorderly conduct. He pled guilty and was imprisoned for 30 days. His wailing from withdrawal while in custody was so unbearable to everyone in the jail that a doctor was called to give him injections of morphine at regular intervals. Eventually, he was sent to Cleveland on the city's dime and with a small amount of money per an agreement that he would check himself into a treatment facility for his addiction. 
Do you think he did that thing? I do not. He did not. Instead, he opened another medical practice. I don't even, I didn't even count them because there's so many. Uh, when he got to Cleveland and he sent for Jenny to join him, but he did not know that she had actually died at that point. And after that, he himself was in and out of hospitals for treatment. He kind of started drifting from city to city. He would open medical offices, but they would close almost as soon as he set them up. Probably he was opening them just so he could place orders for drugs. I really wish there had been any effective treatment for morphine addiction. Yeah. Like, yeah. They tried lots of things, but none of them were really mm-hmm. cures so much as I have an idea that that was not really working. So eventually, after a string of troubles, just like those we've already talked about, he ended up back in Dayton, Ohio, living with his parents. Anna, however, back to the first wife, refused to, li- to live with him. He seemed to be in a new phase of life and often pe- told people as much. He spoke openly about his addictions and how he had put all of that behind him. When Anna filed for divorce again on September 25th of 1905, it took Oliver by surprise. Uh, he confronted her and he told her he would kill her if she didn't withdraw the filing, but she refused. He himself attempted suicide by taking 150 grains of the hypnotic drug uh, trigonal, but that did not kill him. There's actually some debate over whether or not he knew that it would not kill him. Not long after this, Oliver found out that he had been cut out of his parents' will and that everything would go to his brother, Jesse. After a heated argument with his father, he told a family friend that he would kill them all if they didn't change the will to include him again. I like how that's just his casual reaction. I don't like what you do. I'll kill you. Like yes. That's just how he goes about his life at this point. Uh, he soon placed a large rush order for hyoscine hydrobromide with a medical supplier in Cleveland. So remember that from earlier in the episode. Uh, he was still on file as a physician with that medical supplier, and so the order was shipped to Dayton. And he also purchased a larger-than-normal supply of oil for the family house when the vendor came to visit on his normal rounds. Not long after midnight on November 5th, 1905, Oliver Haw banged on a neighbor's door to tell them that his parents' home was on fire. While the house initially didn't appear to be in flames, a trail of oil roughly eight inches wide ran through the house and was indeed burning. When Oliver was asked if everyone got out, he said that they had. And then neighbors began running into the house to try to save what they could of the possessions. So there's a weird thing that happens here. And yes, that is weird. I do mean that it's weird, even in the context of all of this madness that is his life, where when additional neighbors arrived, as other men were running in and out of the house, Haw told those new arrivals that his family was trapped inside. And when the blaze became too dangerous and the men who had been working to save any of those valuables all came out, they were questioned as to why they didn't try to save the family. And when one of the men, Thomas Farrell, who had been running in and out of this burning house, confronted Haw about having said everyone was out, the doctor replied, I know that I did, but they are all in there. And in there, in this case, meant the house and a back bedroom that he was gesturing to. There was so much confusion going on with the house on fire that it seems like nobody really stopped to think about the weirdness of his ever-shifting story. The flames were so great at this point that really no one dared go into the burning house again. 
Hall was taken to a neighbor's house and treated for a burn on his leg. And later, a doctor was sent for who treated the blistering burns on his leg again and gave him a painkiller that was not morphine or cocaine, specifically at Hall's request. And meanwhile, this fire was still burning. At this point, uh, it was not going to be put out. They were waiting for it to burn through. Eventually, spectators could see the bodies of the Haw family falling one by one through a burned floor under the bedroom down into the cellar below. Haw was admitted to the hospital under the care of Dr. Fred C. Weaver, who had actually been a classmate of his at Miami Medical College. Again, Haw was adamant that while he needed something for the pain from his burns, he would not take morphine. This is where her Holly's favorite thing to do. We are going to cliffhang you, uh, awaiting what happens next. Uh, we're going to talk about the investigation of this incredibly suspicious fire and the trial that followed and things uh, relating to the deaths of the family in our next episode. Yeah. Do you have some listener mail before we call it a day? I do, and it's not grisly at all. Oh, yay. <laughs> I have a couple of pieces, uh, as I want to do lately. Uh, one is these are actually two comments that were made on our Facebook page about our knitting episode. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to point them out because they brought new information to light that I had not thought about or that wasn't in the episode. Uh, one was from our listener, Margaret, and she said a newer material that knitting needles are made out of is carbon fiber composites, just like jet fighters. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And then I wondered why. I did super strong. I, another listener commented that sometimes depending on the, the fiber that you select and your knitting style, it can kind of create a nails on a chalkboard situation, Mm -hmm. but that they are very smooth and uh, a lot of people love them. So, uh, another one is from our listener. I'm hoping I pronounce it correctly. Arian, uh, and she commented on that same thing. As someone who spins, I'd also like to add that elasticity is impacted by the texture of the fiber and how the fiber is spun. It's not really important to the overall story, but I thought that you might want to know. Fine, smooth fibers like a merino tend to make for fabrics with more drape and less stretch. Crinkly fibers, she herself fell in love with a Clune Forest BFL crossbreed sheep's wool, will give more bounce to a yarn spun at the same ratio. It's a very cool aspect to knitting, weaving, and crocheting, and it has driven nifty innovations in breeding over the millennia, I presume in breeding of sheep to create different types of wool. So that's kind of cool information that I didn't stumble across in my research. Yeah. And I like it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, mention, it's not so much listener mail, but we got an awesome gift while we were in Chicago recently. We did. Uh, our listener, Brian DuPont, and I normally, we don't do last names just for safety, but as he is publishing under that name, yep, I figure it's safe. That's different. Uh, Brian Dupont, who is an artist, uh, gave us a bunch of comics that he's drawn. Yeah, uh, including one that features uh, Edward Binney as a character. Yeah, and there are lots of historical figures in them. Uh, this one is a series called Pecos Bill, and it has Tesla in it and other people that you have heard of on this podcast, including. Posters of Orville and Wilbur Wright. Yeah. Uh, so it's very cool. Thank you so much, Brian. I felt bad because he had emailed us about it. And I, we, it was one of those emails that I was like, I'll reply to that and then when I, I have yeah. a minute to think about it. And then that minute never materialized. Yeah, the thing I feel guilty about is that, uh, as we have discussed, I don't work from the Atlanta office anymore. So sometimes when I come to visit, which I do pretty regularly, I will get here and my desk is covered in listener presence. And often I'm like, who do I thank? 
And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't remember to put their name on it. So that's really my Oh, my no. Mess. I didn't mean to make you feel bad in front of everyone. That's not nice. It's okay. Um, I'm not so organized with those things. If you were the person who sent us beautiful metal bookmarks, drop us a note, please. Oh, yes. You really do want to drop us a note. Yes. Tracy has plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you so much to Brian and to our uh, listeners that wrote in about their knitting knowledge. We appreciate it. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast.howstuffworks.com. You can also visit us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at history. If you would like to visit our parent site, How Stuff Works, uh, and learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can type in the word addiction into the search bar and you will get an article called How Addiction Works will maybe help make sense of this weird cyclical nature of the life of Oliver Haw. Yeah. And I, it was a roller coaster. I once again wish there had been any effective treatment for addiction to morphine when I mean even today it's really hard. Yeah. But there was basically nothing when he was alive. Yeah, they would give people sedatives and hope that they would just be calm for the duration of their time in whatever facility they were in. Right. Which isn't really treating an addiction. No. It's just medicating in a different way. Uh, so if you would like to visit us, uh, you can do that at mistinhistory.com where we have an archive of all of the episodes that have existed ever. We have show notes from any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as some other goodies. So we encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.